Hey listeners, I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, and you're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast on a Tuesday. Pastor Ross Anderson joins me for today's topic. And remember, you can find resources to have this conversation with your family, small group, or mentor. Find it all at PursueGod.org. Okay, Ross, today we're in week number four of our series on eschatology. In week one, we kind of gave just an overview of that really big word, which is just all about the end times and what the Bible says about it. In week two, we talked about the rapture. In week three, we talked about the tribulation and the Antichrist. And today we're going to talk about something we've already given a little bit of time to. We're going to talk today about the millennium. Now, before I, I read the main passage that that this whole concept really leads to, why don't you explain this just in layman's terms? What are we talking about when we're talking about the millennium? Yeah, so the millennium, the word itself comes from a Latin word that means a thousand. And so basically it it means a thousand year period. And so we might talk, you know, in secular terms about the second millennium BC as a time period or whatever. But in the Bible, what theologians are particularly referring to is what's what is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. This word is used several times in a row in Revelation chapter 20 to describe what, if taken literally, would be a 1,000-year period that comes when Jesus returns again. And so the questions have to do with, is that mean, is that meant literally or is it meant symbolically or, or what, does Jesus come first or does Jesus come you know later than this and so those are the questions that that pertain to the question of the millennium this thousand year period is it really a thousand years is it really in the future is it in the present or past and so those are the questions that we'll be trying to answer in today's episode okay so today we're going to then be talking about post-millennialism amillennialism and premillennialism; those are the three major options. We're going to get into all those details here just in just a second. But as I mentioned, Ross, this this whole thing really flows out of an understanding of Revelation chapter twenty, verses one to six. And so we're going to go to that, read that for people, so that so that we have some context for what people are debating over, what they're fighting over, because clearly there's more than one way to read this passage, and then some of the other auxiliary passages that relate to this. So Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, it says this. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. So there it is, a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished, and afterward he must be released for a little while. So this is part of what we're going to be getting into, right, is it seems like a very specific picture. Now, some of it is maybe maybe feels a little cartoonish, and that's maybe what we're going to have to get into a little bit. Is this Is this real, literal stuff? Is this literally a thousand years? What's going on here? We're going to get into all of this. But continuing on in the passage, it says, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue 
nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So now I'm starting to think pre-trib. Now I'm starting to think about some of the things we've talked about before, right, Ross? It says, they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there it is, a third time we've heard about a thousand years. And then he goes on, he says this, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. There it is. Four times in these six verses, we see the the phrase of a thousand years. So for many people, they'd say, okay, clearly this thousand year reign is a real thing, but there's a lot more that we have to unpack because it's talking about the first resurrection. It's talking about the second death. So Ross, help us out. There's three main ways that this has been understood historically. Um, and as we mentioned, post-millennialism is one, amillennialism, pre-millennialism. Those are the three we want to talk about today. So let's start with post-millennialism because it, it, today it seems, even though this was prominent once in the life of, of American Christianity, it seems to be less prominent today. And so there's probably less people who are uh, hold this position of post-millennial. So the question is, there's two questions related to the millennium. Number one is, is it symbolic or is it actual? And the second question is, does it happen before Jesus comes back or does it happen after Jesus comes back? And so you see in the passage itself, there's a couple things going on there. One is, it's essentially the reign of Jesus, the rule of Jesus. And he's ruling with Christians, with believers who belong to him. And and you see that the Satan is, is somehow restrained during that period of time. Now, the post-millennial, that, those, that word means that Jesus comes back post the millennium or after the millennium. So the idea of post-millennialism is that Christianity is gradually improving. It's the gospel is spreading. The influence of Christians and Christian values is going to uh, be improving and increasing until the, it becomes this time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and spiritual uh, prosperity where God's people are really doing great, where the, the Christian values probably rule you know, the roost. And so that's, that's the idea of the millennium is, is happening now. And it's actually a real thing. And the reign of Jesus is taking shape in the world around us through the advance of missions and and through Christian influence and more people coming to faith in Christ and, and all the rest. And so ultimately, by the end of the millennium, Jesus will return again. That's when uh, Christians will actually fulfill the Great Commission. Disciples uh, will be made of all nations, and that'll be um, fulfilled as the message of Jesus' work uh, permeates the whole world. Okay, so let me let me stop and try to summarize again for our listeners. We're t- so post millennial means Jesus comes back post the millennium. So his his return is going to be after the thousand years. And so when they read Revelation twenty verse six, for them the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. What they're saying is exactly. So they're gonna. We're going to reign with we're going to reign with Jesus a thousand years, but actually Jesus isn't going to come back until the end of the thousand years. So where does the rapture 
Where does the rapture and the tribulation fit into that for a post-millennialist? Probably the idea that, well, the rapture, that the saints um, will be caught up to meet with Jesus. I think that might still be an issue because the, the church, it, well, it's a problem because the ra- the the rapture includes, um, as we saw previously, the idea of resurrection. So the resurrection is here you know, at the at the beginning of the millennium, the resurrection of believers is here, and so it's probably my my understanding. I don't understand the, the post millennial position as well as I do the others because there just aren't very many people who hold it. But I, I would understand probably that these things are taken as symbolic rather than as literal. For example, in if you take Revelation nineteen and twenty literally, you see Jesus returning to conquer all of the. Uh, nations of the of the world that oppose God at the end of chapter 19 and then it moves immediately into this this conversation that you read earlier in Revelation 20 and so the the person the postmillennialist would probably have to view revelation as being symbolic or revelation having um, cyclical view rather than linear view that that it's a series of cycles that happen over and over again and that end at the same place with Jesus return Okay, so one of the passages that the post-millennialists love is Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Let me read that. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations, and he will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. So how, so why does a post-millennialist love that beautiful, optimistic picture that we just read in Isaiah chapter 2? Because they they see that as leading the way for the return of Jesus, and then and so they now here's an interesting factor is that it depends on how you understand the Old Testament prophecies, and and this would be so most premillennial people would say this really refers to the nation of Israel, but postmillennials would say this the nation the church has has taken over the uh, prophetic meaning or the identity of Israel. Israel's uh, meaning has been wrapped up into the church now, and so this is—they would see this as a picture of the church of God's people. And now, premillennials would also quote this, only they would say, "Well, the timing is different. The timing is before, or the timing is after the time that Jesus returns." So, so the difference in a, pre-mill, a premillennial would say that Jesus will reign in fullness when He comes back again. Postmillennial would say Jesus is reigning now. In fullness, and his his reign is leading toward um, a, a result in human history. So remember, post millennial is say is meaning that Jesus comes back post the thousand year reign. Pre millennial is where you said Jesus is going to come back before the thousand year reign. So we'll get into those details. But first, Ross, one more, some more verses that a post millennialist would just have on their walls of their kitchen. Right, Matthew thirteen. Verses 31 to 33, this is Jesus. He says, here's another illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree 
and the birds come and make nests in its branches. And then verse 33, he used another illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. And so how does a post-millennialist use those two short parables of Jesus to support their view? Those parables both point out the idea that uh, there's something that that starts small, that the kingdom of God is something that starts small, but it has ever-increasing influence or ever-increasing effect. Like, you know, the, the seed, sm- the small seed will grow into a large plant. And so the post-millennialists would say, well, that's what's been happening throughout history, that, that this is the ultimate trajectory of human history is when Jesus comes back in, he'll find his church is this fruitful a tree that that has grown from this the seed that was planted in the first century. Okay, so overall, the post-millennialist perspective is characterized by this optimism for the future. It's envisioning this transformative power of the gospel shaping the world and ushering in the Great Commission and preparing it for the return of Christ. I mean, all this sounds so great, so why does nobody believe in this anymore, right? This is not a majority view in modern America. Well, I think what happened was the time, say, Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century was a leading American theologian and pastor. He was a post-millennialist, and he wrote a lot about how, you know, the, uh, Christianity post-Reformation, Christianity was expanding into more countries, and more rulers were adopting Protestantism rather than Catholicism. And so, so it, things looked more optimistic in that time. But, but I mean, we've seen in our day, we've seen uh, two world wars. We've seen, you know, all kinds of, uh, I guess we're more connected globally. So we know all the problems that are happening in other parts of the world and uh, pandemics and, um, and wars and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And, and so the optimism of post-millennialism has been dampened, I think, by, by human world events. And so I think people are saying, well, you know, this understanding, this, this sense of what's going to happen in the future doesn't seem to match up with reality as we know it. I think the post-millennial would, this would say, well, the kingdom of God will face obstacles along the way, but eventually it will triumph. We just haven't seen that yet. But um, a lot of people are looking around saying, well, we don't really buy that. That, that doesn't seem to be taking place that way. Okay, so that's post-millennialism, not very popular today. Let's jump, Ross, to premillennialism while we're on this topic, because I think it's helpful to put these right next to each other. So post-millennialism, again, means that they believe that the return of Christ will happen after post the millennial reign that we read about in Revelation 20. So then it makes sense that a premillennialist believes that the return of Christ will happen before the millennial reign. So again, when they read Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6, they put it together and say clearly what's happening here is that Jesus is coming back and then the thousand-year reign starts. Explain that to us. Right. And so it's more of a literal reading of the the book of Revelation, that it's following this, um, this, this more literal, linear sequence 
of events. Jesus comes back in verse in chapter 19, like I said, and then then he introduces this um, this time of his rule where Satan is bound and where the, his people are resurrected at the rapture, as we mentioned. And so, um, premillennialism, you know, anticipates that there is going to be this literal, actual, a thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus. And the I think the thinking behind this is that it demonstrates that Jesus is the really the prophetic a summarizer of the reign of King David. He that that he is the son of David in a real sense. So he's going to have a real rule over not just Israel but over the whole whole world because he is Lord of the whole world. And so this is where then the eschatology that we've talked about the tribulation happens. Um, and then, and then people are raptured and to be persecuted to Jesus. But then, uh, after after all of that, then Jesus is going to set up his rule, and he's going to demonstrate the justice and the benevolence of his rule to a world that still contains both believers and non-believers. This is before the final judgment, and so the world the the world of the premillennial. Um, reign is a mixed world, and in Revelation twenty talks about how at the end of that, then the nations uh, once again rebel against Jesus, and He wins the final victory, and then the final judgment comes. And so, it's an interesting perspective. Um, it's probably the perspective that drives most of the people who write a lot about eschatology, and so most of the popular preachers of eschatology would would hold this view. Okay, so let's read some of. Revelation 20 again, and go ahead and stop me as I read this and kind of give a little bit more explanation now about how a premillennialist would interpret this. So he, he, it says, I saw an angel coming down from, from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit. He sees the dragon, Satan, bound him up in chains for a thousand years. Would they have anything to say about that? What are we talking about? What are we talking about here? Is this still, is this like some play that's happening up in heaven that we're, I feel like we haven't really talked about this kind of stuff. How does a premillennialist explain this? Well, this is, the premillennialist sees this as being a future event. It's not the way it is right now. Satan is still plenty active in the world around us right now, but Jesus comes back and he defeats the Antichrist and his allies. And so the, the clear, obvious next step is that he defeats Satan as well. And so during the millennial period, Jesus' reign is able to unfold without any um, supernatural or spiritual opposition. Reading on, verse 3. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan couldn't deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished afterwards. He must be released for a little while. Okay, wait a second. What are we talking about there? Are we do premillennialists have any opinion about that? That okay, he's going to be shut up for a thousand years, but then he's going to be released for a, for a minute. Yeah. So if you read, if we were to read beyond verse six, we would see what that's talking about. That the idea of Satan is let out again, um, and he leads this rebellion of the nations of unbelieving citizens of Jesus' millennial reign against Jesus against his rule, um, which has you know, always been the case with, with human heart. The human heart wants to rebel against God and his rep, representatives. So, so that's talking about, and if you read on into the verses past verse 6, you see then how, what, what really happens then when, in this idea that when Satan is released, then he exerts his influence. And I think premillennialists would say 
that what that demonstrates is that even under the perfect rule of Jesus and everything in the world after all this time, Jesus as king is there's it's just and it's prosperous and it's you know the ideal world conditions that even under those conditions that that people are still bent on rejecting his rule. Now, some people might say, wait a second, that kind of sounds like a tribulation. If Satan's released, is that is does it relate to the tribulation in any way? What is this talking about? Yeah, nobody would uh, necessarily make that equation that I'm aware of. It might be there might include some time of tribulation, but it doesn't say that really that Satan is able to establish any authority. Like we saw with we talked about the Antichrist. The Antichrist was given some authority, and he's actually able to control uh, human ec- economies and political systems and so forth. It, it, the sa- Satan is willing is able to kind of rally. Um, his followers, and they rise up for this final battle, and they lose. Okay, let's read on. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus. Okay, wait a second. This really sounds like the tribulation. I saw those guys, and for proclaiming the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So now it's starting to sound like some of the things that we've covered in some previous episodes. And what he's saying is he saw them all come to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so how does a premillennialist explain that? It's referring to what happened back in chapter 13. We talked about the Antichrist and his persecution, martyrdoms, and so forth. And so the idea is that um, those who were killed in that martyrdom, you know, they died. And they're in, in what we would call the intermediate state of, of Christians or, or even of non-Christians have the intermediate state, the idea of what happens after you die before the final judgment. And so they're resurrected and, and they uh, participate in the rule of Jesus somehow. So this is, so we've turned the page on tribulation. And now we're in, in the period that follows tribulation that makes everything right again, I guess you could say. Okay, so connect the dots for us again. So we talked about pre-trib, pre-wrath rapture, and post-trib rapture of the church. So help us now connect some of these dots, because again, a lot of folks out there listening to this, they might not know these words, but they probably go to a church where at least their pastor, who does know these words, is a what? Is a how would you how would they describe themselves in in terms of pre-trib and premillennial or pre-trib and postmillennial explain some of that yeah pre the premillennial position um can easily encompass any of those three views of the tribulation and the rapture because those are really talking about whether what happens before Jesus returns and this is talking about what happens after Jesus returns so so all of that is all of the tribulation and rapture is talking about the, what happens before or at the return of Jesus. And then uh, nobody says that the, that the tribulation is going to happen after the public return of Jesus. It might happen after a secret return of Jesus for his church. That would be the pre-tribulational rapture position. And so all of the rapture issues and all of the uh, tribulation issues are resolved when Jesus comes back. And that sets the table for the premillennialist. Then this is what happens next in the next inning, so to speak. Um, Jesus is ruling. 
the resurrection has happened, you know, at the rapture, and Jesus is now ruling, and um, all that tribulation questions and antichrist questions are now in the rearview mirror. Okay, so most again, most of our listeners would then be probably, or at least let's say the 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 popular books out there, the Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, those guys are pre-trib, pre-mill. Is that how they would? Is that how they would identify themselves in in terms of their eschatology? Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. Definitely. So, what about someone who says, "Well, I'm post-trib, pre-mill." The po- again, just to clarify for our listeners, the post when we're talking about in terms of trib. What what is the post referred to and versus what the pre refers to with millennial? Does that make sense? The question that I'm asking for people. Right. That's a great question. So really, they both, in that instance, they both refer to the return of Christ, the public, full, glorious return when Jesus comes back as king. The tribulation is before that, pre-trib, and the millennium is after that. So pre-millennial means that Jesus returns before the millennium. Pre-tribulation means that Jesus returns before the tribulation. Post-tribulation means Jesus comes back after, pre-mill before the millennium. So the pre and the post all have to do with the timing of those events with respect to the public return, the glorious return of Jesus. Okay, so then how, how are believers going to be reigning with Jesus in the, millenni- in the millennium if they've been raptured? Well, they're, ra- they're raptured to meet Jesus in the air. And apparently the idea is they come back down with him. I think from the premillennial perspective, they go meet Jesus on the way in. And when he enters the house, they're still with him. Um, you know, when he comes to, you, when he comes to the, the final destination, they're now gathered around him and they're with him. And then he's um, involving them in, you know, his administration. Okay, so the pre-trib pre-mill people, which again, is probably most of our listeners, whether they know it or not. Again, if you're listening to this saying, I don't know what I am, I bet you, you're pa- most likely your pastor, <laughs> your small group leader is pre-trib, pre-mill, right, Ross? Yeah, it's, it's the most common position um, among evangelical Christians in America today. Yeah, I mean, not to throw under the bus any of the other positions. I'm just trying to help people to so many of our listeners are are approaching this saying, I've this is my first pass at this kind of stuff. These words are all so new. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around these words. But it's helpful for them to know that a lot of the people that they know, that they see on YouTube, whatever, they're probably a lot of people in their faith community. If if they if they've studied this, they probably have studied it from the pre-trib, pre-mill position. So they're saying that Jesus comes back raptures the church before the seven-year tribulation, and they're just hanging out with Jesus for a while, and then they come back for the thousand-year reign? Yeah, that's the idea. But that, but that they're not a part, they don't have to go through the tribulation, which is what the pre-trib view posits. Right, because they're raptured in advance of the tribulation, and they're yeah, waiting for Jesus to come in his glory. Yeah. Okay, so... There, there are a couple of other big words when we talk about premillennialism that we probably need to bring up as well, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but really premillennialism is divided into some subcategories, and here are a couple of them. Help us 
understand these words, Ross, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. What, what's the difference between those two? Okay, so dispensational approach to Scripture, it's a, it's a method of interpreting Scripture that became popular in the mid-1800s. Um, now, there's elements of it that probably have existed from way back, uh, but as a system, it became popular in the early, in the early to mid-1800s, and it's become popularized um, through certain Bible translations or Bible methods, uh, I should say, Bible study Bible approaches and, and different seminaries and stuff like that. So the thing about dispensationalism versus any other view is that dispensationalism draws a clear distinction between God's plan for the nation of Israel versus God's plan for the church. And so uh, when it comes to eschatology, the dispensational person who's looking at the question of the millennium would equate the millennium in Revelation 20, would equate that with uh, passages in the Old Testament that were uh, originally prophecies spoken over Israel, like the one that we read earlier from Isaiah, and, and would say, well, that, that's, God needs to fulfill that promise to Israel. And the church is not even part of that. And so people who are not dispensational would say, no, there's some kind of unity or some kind of continuity between Israel and the church, and it's, it's not as simple as that. And so that prophecy of Isaiah could refer to all of you know, God's people in general, church or Israel, either way. And so dispensational pre-millennialism uh, pre says that there's really got to be a time in the history of the world when those promises and prophecies made to the nation of Israel are fulfilled by God. And this time of Jesus' rule is the time when that occurs. And they need to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel, not just to the church, whereas the the historic premillennialist says, no, I do, look, it's all that the church now is the new Israel. And so all those, all those fulfillments can now happen to the church of God, you know, the community of faith, the believers, all the believers around the world. It doesn't have to, like Israel doesn't have a special place so much anymore, right. the nation of Israel. Right. That's, that's, I mean, there's a lot more that we could say um, at another time, maybe about dispensationalism and the different wrinkles and different arguments for and against it. But in a nutshell, that's how these two approaches, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism, would differ. They would really look very similar in terms of a lot of the other aspects of premillennialism. Okay, before we move on, just real quick, what what is a dispensation? Just for our listeners— because because that that word dispensational relates to the idea of a dispensation. What does that even mean? Yeah, it's a it refers to a particular period where God where God works in a particular way in human history, and so it's an it's an era, and so God worked in a particular way through Israel before Christ came. So that was a certain dispensation, and then people label them in different ways. So we go into that. But, but the idea of a dispensation is a, a set era or period of time where, where God's dealing with humanity would look different from another period of time. Okay, so I know we, we don't want to get into the weeds, but I just got to ask, how many dispensations 
do most dispensationalists believe in? Obviously, too, the dispensation of of Israel and the dispensation dispensation of the church. But are there more are there more dispensations when you kind of look at salvation history from the beginning of time? Well, different dispensationalists historically have divided this up in different ways, and probably most I don't know. There's a a dispensational movement that said it's moved away from some of that. Um, it's called progressive dispensationalism. It's kind of taken uh, more thought and more theological reflection and, and, and received some criticisms and incorporated the response to those criticisms. But in the past, you could divide it up in a lot of different ways. But some, For example, some people might say, oh, then there's the dispensation of Adam. So God dealt with Adam in a certain way. And later on, then there's, and then there's the dispensation before the law. So before God gave the law through Moses, uh, maybe a dispensation of Abraham, and then through the law, and then and then in the future they would say there's a dispensation of God dealing with national Israel again in an eschatological sense. And then of course the the church, right? When the church begins and the church dispensation. All right. Well, enough of that. Maybe we need to do a a whole episode on dispensationalism because it is kind of interesting, and you always run into folks that feel. What I've noticed, Ross, with a lot of dispensationalists is it really drives their theology kind of like this, that, you, that when they think about when they think about eschatology, then they bring in, they have to overlay dispensationalism, or maybe it's the other way around. They overlay eschatology on their dispensationalism. And and really it's it's helpful to think about that in terms of what's the driving framework for your theological approach. But again, you don't have to be a dispensationalist to be a premillennialist, even though maybe that's when it dispensationalism, would you say probably is what made premillennialism popular is, is a lot of that stuff started to rise at the same time, probably in the 1800s. Yeah. I don't know whether there's what the cause and effect relationship would be between them, but they did seem to rise around the same time in the mid 1800s. But again, you can be a pre and many people are just historic premillennialists. They say, I, I don't really see this this distinction between Israel and the church anymore, that the church can fulfill now all the promises that we read, like in Isaiah 2, what we read earlier today. Ross, before we move on from premillennialism, what, what do critics say? It, you know, if this is what, mo, you know, probably the majority of evangelical Christians today would probably land in, pre-millennial, in a premillennialist position, what do the critics have to say? Why do, why do critics not like this? Well, it all goes down back to an... an a framework of interpreting the book of Revelation. How literal is it? How literal is it meant to be? And there's clearly um, elements of the book of Revelation that are that are not meant to be taken literally. Different people will disagree about what those are, how how extensive those are, whatever. But is the timeline and the flow of events and the narrative is that meant to be literal? And so the, the, the question underlying that is, you know, is really probably what divides people the most. But there are elements. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, um, there are uh, cert- certain elements that, like the literal approach, maybe people go like, well, that doesn't really make sense, or I don't really understand how that works. For example, you have two groups in the millennium under the premillennial perspective because the believers are resurrected at the beginning of the millennium, and then... You know, unbelievers are re- are not resurrected till the end of the millennium. But they're resurrected to go into judgment, into their final state. Um, but the, so the, in the in the millennium, you've got all these people in the world 
Now, the, the, the human population is not wiped out when Jesus returns. And so there's a lot of people who are still populating the world then who are not followers of Christ in this perspective. The, and who are not, so you have basically mortals and immortals living in the same world side by side. Resurrected immortals and mortal people who are going to die at the end and have children and all the rest. Um, for a thousand years, you have to have generation after generation. And, and immortal resurrected believers are, I don't think anybody believes that they're procreating. But you, so you have this world population that includes a mixture of both, which like it does today. But what it doesn't include today is a mixture between different kinds of beings, resurrected beings and unresurrected beings. So some people say, oh, that's an example of the kind of things that, that don't quite make sense or don't quite add up in this view or this interpretation of Revelation 20. Okay, so hold on. Let, I've never even actually I've never even thought about this before. So this is let let me let me try to summarize what you just said and see if I get this right cuz probably our listeners are thinking their heads are spinning here. So a a pre for example, a pre-trib pre-mill person would say Jesus is coming back. He's going to the dead in Christ will rise first like like we like it says in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians the dead in Christ will rise first. So they're going to come to meet him in the air. That's what the rapture means. That the that the believe those who are believers, living believers, will meet him in the air. Right. That we're all gonna we're all gonna be raptured. So all these believers are gonna be raptured to Jesus. Some of those have been dead for fifteen hundred years. We're 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 gonna be raptured and meet. We'll meet Jesus in the air. Something's gonna happen during that seven year tribulation period. As, you know, let's put an asterisk on that, depending on your perspective about when this is all going to happen. But then all of those people who just got raptured are going to come back with Jesus to to the earth, right? And and reign for a thousand years. So what you're saying is then it's going to be believers who were alive during the rapture. It's going to be those who were dead in Christ come back to the rapture, but they're also immortal. This is what you mean by the immortals, is, the, is some of them will, had, have already died, and now they're not going to marry and have kids and all that kind of stuff, but then there's already these mortals living there for those thousand, that's a thousand years. That's a lot of time. And so there's going to be this weird mixture. I guess, would that mean that the the mortals are going to are going to die in, a, in their regular course of life? They're going to die, but the the immortals are going to live for a thousand years. Is that and, and the believers are going to live for a thousand years? Yeah, that that those are the implications of if you if you have a literal reading of chapter twenty because it talks about how you know the nations rise against the rule of Jesus at the end of the millennium period. Well, who who is that? You know, that's got to be non-believers, and they they'd have to be the progeny of all the non-believers who were there when Jesus came back. And so it seem it seems like oh well that doesn't seem like it makes sense to a lot of people. And therefore, we have a third option. <laughs> I mean, that's not the only reason, but we have our listeners saying, okay, I'm not, as op- I'm not optimistic enough to be a post-millennialist. I, I've just now, what you just explained doesn't seem to make sense to me. So now we have this third thing that now I think people are ready to hear about ah, millennialism. What does the ah in ah, millennialism mean? Yeah, so we said... You know, post means that the millennium happens, Jesus comes back after it. Pre means Jesus comes back before it. Ah means that there, it, it's, it means there is no literal millennial period. There's really no period of a thousand years that there's, it's not 
before Jesus comes back. It's not after Jesus comes back, but it, it doesn't you know, exist as a historical entity. And so the millennium to all millennials is symbolic of Jesus' rule in the world now. And he's, Jesus, you know, is Lord. Um, so he's, he's at work in the world now. He's in, he's in charge of history. Um, he's bringing it to its conclusion. And, um, and so ultimately, the amillennial would not see a reason why there's a period in between Jesus' return and the final judgment. Why is there a period in and and see that that's the question that we were just talking about is in in amillennial and in postmillennial perspectives there's not a waiting period for people who are you know uh, unbelievers they when Jesus comes back they all go immediately into judgment from there so the awe means no literal one thousand year period and that so it means something other than a literal reign of Christ so are they saying that the period is is not as long as a thousand years, or are they saying that it's not even a period at all? Well, they're saying that it, it's not. It's not. It's longer than a thousand years because it it represents symbolically the number doesn't matter. The literal number doesn't matter. They're saying a, a millennium, or the use of that that Latin word means that it's infinitely long or it's indefinitely long. Let's put it that way. That it's it's like we would say a bajillion. We don't have a specific amount in mind, but it just means lots and lots. And so the idea is that the millennium began when Jesus was resurrected, and it will end, so to speak, not counting years, but the the symbolic nature of Jesus' rule will lead into his return, um, physical, literal return, and then boom, it's straight into um, eternity for everybody. Okay, I've got, I've got a bunch of questions on behalf of our listeners. So would an amillennialist still believe in a... So, so if they're saying that, the, that, the, that it's a symbolic representation rather than a literal thousand-year period, would they say then there's not going to be a literal rapture, for example? Yeah, they would, they, I think they would uh, generally say there's a literal rapture, but maybe not because... There's a sense that what does that represent? It represents the union of Jesus with his people, the reunion of, of the people as they recognize. So, so maybe not. And maybe they would um, not believe that there's a literal tribulation either. I think they would tend to say probably, well, there's times of tribulation that because the book of Revelation is symbolic, the rise of the Antichrist um, reminds us that there are Antichrist characters throughout human history. And there are times of tribulation where Christians are persecuted and martyred throughout human history. And so all opposing the reign of Jesus as king, which occurs throughout human history. So how would an amillennialist view, say, the tribulation? Do they believe, again, we're kind of playing off of this idea that they're viewing the millennium as symbolic. So now we're going back to our previous lessons and saying, then is the tribulation symbolic for them as well? Yeah, I mean, it's symbolic of tribulation, suffering, the rule of evil, whenever and however it occurs in human history. Okay, so I can hear our listeners saying i'm i'm uncomfortable it feels it feels like this could be a slippery slope to to start saying because it, this is true in other areas to start saying well i'm going to say that's symbolic and i'm going to say that there's symbolic and so does it 
does it does this necessarily mean that they take a low view of scripture? I guess is the question is can can an amillennialist have still have a high view of scripture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's amillennialists who have a very high view of scripture and who who are thoroughly orthodox in their Christian faith. But the question the amillennialists would ask in return is, if you don't interpret scripture correctly, or if you impose a foreign interpretation on scripture, doesn't that isn't that evidence that you actually have a low view of scripture? That you're willing to to say, well, I just want the Bible to believe what I want it to say, and I think it makes sense if it's literal. And so I would say you say you interpret the Bible in terms of its genre, in terms of the kind of literature that it is, an apocalyptic literature that literature that we talked to a couple weeks ago about Daniel chapter you know nine, eleven, and so forth, and Book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. They would say deserves to be interpreted a certain way, just like Proverbs do, or just like Psalms do in their own way. And so they, I think the answer would be, well, it's, it's, it really is a high view of Scripture to take seriously the nature of literature that the Scripture is. Okay, so let's go back to Revelation 20. I'm going to throw a verse at you here that we've already read a couple of times. And I want you to explain this now from an amillennialist perspective, right? So we're thinking about symbolic language, we're thinking about what this means then. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. So how would an amillennialist explain this passage? Yeah, that's, that's hard for me to answer that because I'm not an amillennialist. And this is probably one of the biggest critiques of amillennialism in terms of Re- Revelation 20 is that, well, if the millennium is the current reign of Jesus. Well, then it certainly doesn't appear in history like Satan is bound in some unique way, that Satan is somehow released after the Jesus returns. So that it really does raise a question, just like there's other details in chapter 20 that raise a question about premillennialism. This is a detail in chapter 20 that raises questions about amillennialism, about you know what does it mean in some sense um, and people will say, will make, will say stuff like, like, well, in some sense, his power is limited in some way because Jesus is on the throne. Um, that his power, he only gives Satan as much power as fits within God's ultimate larger plan. But, but it doesn't look like, again, back to the post-millennial perspective, it doesn't look like in our experience that Satan is bound in any particular way. That's that's greater than say before the resurrection of Jesus. So they would they would maybe interpret this in kind of broader spiritual terms. So they they would maybe say, well, well, that verse two there is talking about his victory over sin and evil through his death and resurrection. It wasn't complete, wasn't full and complete, um, but it really it inaugurated this 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 new age in which we live. I might even say a dispensation in which we live, which where Satan's power is limited. Yeah, that that that's again. Um, I'm not expressing their perspective as maybe the way they would or as good as they would, but I think that's the direction that that uh, it makes sense that amillennialists would take. One of the other things that amillennialists do then is they emphasize the symbolic nature of numbers in the Book of Revelation. There's an awful lot of numbers in the Book of Revelation. One thousand is one of those numbers, but there's more. And so explain that, explain kind of how they view that 
the the number symbolically rather than literally. Right. And so, for example, the 144,000 witnesses of Christ, there are 12 tribes of Israel and divided by 144,000, there's 12,000 um, people. So it's like a, round, a, a nice Hebrew round number. It's like, it's like we would say, you know, maybe our big round number is 10 or 100 in our culture today. So, so we might say, oh, there's, there's 1 million, and that's a round number that, that signifies, it doesn't mean exactly a million, but it might mean a lot, right? So we talked about that earlier. And so the book of Revelation talks about seven things, seven churches, because seven is a number of completeness. And, um, and 12, 12 and the multiples of 12 are this number that's derived from the significance of the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. And so as you look at the numbers of 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 revelation you see oh they're reflecting some bigger scheme of things and so that means that you can't necessarily just take a given number that's reported in the text and understand it literally and so i think that's the the drift of that okay let's talk about how an amillennialist views the resurrection and and even the judgment because you i think you mentioned when we were explaining the pre-trib, pre-mill perspective that there's there's a there's a resurrection of the of believers, and then set, set, later on there'll be a resurrection and a judgment of non-believers. After I think you said after the millennial reign, how, how does an amillennialist view resurrection and judgment? Yeah, th- that they would view the idea that that we go immediately. The judgment occurs. That there is a judgment, a final judgment at the end of the age as described at the end of Revelation chapter 20. And this is something, and it's described in other places in Scripture too that are not apocalyptic. So this is something that when Jesus returns, then the cosmos will immediately uh, go into judgment and eternity will begin. But I don't really, I don't really understand necessarily how the amillennialists would explain these two resurrections. In, because if the millennium is not a particular time, then you you would have you could have resurrection after the millennium because Jesus came back and everybody will be resurrected either to you know judgment or to glory. But what's the first resurrection that that is talking about? What does that symbolize? Something does it symbolize a person coming to faith? Does it symbolize you know this idea that you know we're made alive spiritually from the dead? I'm not sure what direction people will will really take with that. Okay, so. What do critics, I mean, I think we've already kind of poked a little bit at this, but what, what would critics overall, what would they have a, the hardest time with when it comes to the amillennialist view? Yeah, I think, I think probably the idea of the symbolism, because the symbolism seems to um, negate the idea that God has made promises, that God has prophecies that'll be fulfilled, and that those, those things aren't going to happen if in, a, in some actual sense if they're only symbolic of something else. And so so I think really that and we the idea of Satan being bound, the idea of uh you know some of their details of the text that don't fully make sense either. But I think the biggest idea is say, hey, it's not all symbolic. You can't take it as symbolic unless there's a reason to do to do so. You can't just decide it's sim- symbolic unless there's some clues in the text that help you understand that it ought to be taken symbolic. Okay, so Ross, we've talked about post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial. 
Are there any other options out there for believers as they're listening to this? Because they're saying, I know they're saying, huh, I I kind of see some problems in, I see some good things in each of these, but I also see some questions that that would be brought up. What would you say to that person? Because really this is, I mean, I guess I'll answer my question. These are the three views. There's no other views. Yeah. So what would you say to the person who's not, who's maybe not sure that maybe they're not sure, or maybe they thought they were sure. And now they want to, now they want to do a little more research. Yeah. I, you know, really everything in the Bible matters. Everything that God has chosen to reveal to us matters, but some things matter more than others. If we get, um, salvation right, we get the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus right, that really matters. Honestly, there's a lot about eschatology that in my mind, it it doesn't matter as much. Because, you know, whether we're in the millennium now, Jesus, everyone agrees Jesus is still king. He's, He's the king of the universe. And he is ruling now in a lot of ways. What happens after he comes back? I'm not sure how that affects my life now. You know, so honestly, I say, okay, there's there's some room to to shrug a little bit about some of this, or to to accept some some maybe less than a perfect clarity or perfect understanding about this is an issue where we go like, oh, okay. The key thing is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is king. You know, and one day, hold his ultimate kingship is going to be established in the whole universe. After the millennium, so this is one of the things the amillennialists will say as a critique. They'll say, "Why do you need a millennium on the earth? Isn't Jesus going to come and rule the the whole universe? You know, why does that start with a physical rule of the earth?" And so the fact is, everybody agrees Jesus is going to rule someday, and He's ruling now. But what does that mean? What does it look like? I want to make sure that Jesus is Lord and He's ruling in my life right now. You know, and that I, that I'm uh, following Him fully. And uh, I know he's returning. He's going to return for me. And that gives me hope and encouragement. So I'm okay with saying this issue of the millennium is not a make or break. You know, yeah, churches have to decide what they believe about things. Denominations have to decide, you know, where they stand on things like this. But it's, to me, it's a lesser important uh, doctrine. So go ahead and have a spirited conversation with your family, small group, or mentor on this one. But then at the end, just hug it out and make a commitment to let Jesus be Lord of your life. There's so much to chew on here, Ross. Thanks for helping us with this. So this was lesson four in our eschatology series. Again, if you want to find discussion questions to talk about this with your small group, you can find all that online at pursuegod.org. Find the eschatology series. But there's Ross, there's one more lesson and that'll be for next time, because we, we've talked about the rapture and the tribulation and the Antichrist and the millennium, but it's, I think it's really important for us to talk about hell. You know, we've talked a lot about heaven, and when Jesus comes back and he's going to take people back, but, but I think these days it's also really, really important to have a good, solid, biblical understanding to answer this question, is hell for real? We're going to answer that next time, so tune in. 
Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.